the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Cool. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to have you here today. Um, so, Mike, you are, by way of introduction, the CTA for the AA. Um, AA, obviously, a uh, big household brand, huge household brand, certainly in the UK. And I think I guess a company most people have had some form of interaction with on some way, shape and form on a, on a regular basis. So really interested to hear more about your role today, how you guys approach things from a, a tech perspective. Uh, before we launch into that, um, I've got to say, I have been really looking forward to this episode today from our previous conversation discussing your background. Um, I think it's fair to say you probably haven't had the most well-trodden route throughout your uh, technology career um, and not always done things as expected. Um, but I won't ruin your story. I'll let you uh, let you tell it. So if you'd be so kind, it'd be great just to start at the beginning, get a bit of an understanding of you know, where you started in technology, how you came into the role of a CTO and, uh, and venture forth from there. Sure. So... Yeah, I suppose going back to the uh, the origins of technology, for me, it's always been a passion. I've loved technology ever since, I suppose, you know, got my hands on a ZX81 for those people who want to go to Wikipedia and go for a history lesson on <laughs> IT. I never had one, I must admit. But... Yeah, rubber keyboard, very interesting. Really, yeah, right. But uh, yeah, anyway, so I started off very young. For me, it was a hobby, you know, playing football, did a lot of sport in, in the same kind of aspect of playing sport. I wasn't studious. I think I was intelligent, if that really means something. But, you know, I kind of grew up in a background where it was all about getting out, playing, playing football, playing cricket. Uh, and then, you know, came back home, started messing about at WH Smith's, if people remember that. I think it's still going. It um, is, yeah. So, yeah, still around and normally in train stations. So didn't have a computer at home. So I used to go after school to WH Smith's and hack about on their computers in the early days. Found it really intriguing, found it really interesting that you could type things into this, you know, machine and it came out with a result. And for me, that was quite satisfying in a weird way because it was very linear. It was like mm. you typed something in, something came out, yeah, it responded to my requirements. And I thought, oh, I quite like this. Very kind of kind of switched on to my brain of being logical. So I started off doing that and then pressurized my father into getting me into, uh, I suppose, my first PC, mm -hmm. which he got. And then... In those days, you know, pre-internet, you get a computing magazine and you start off coding little snippets and just enjoyed it from then. And then I suppose, you know, just the interesting part of the story was I don't really have a peer group. You know, when I think about my children now and where yeah. they grow up and the schools and the influences, you know, they have role models, they have, you know, you know, aspirations to be A, B or C and they get, you know, a good peer group from their parents, for example. Um, but my parents were, you know, first time immigrants to the UK. They were working in, you know, factories. They weren't really, I suppose, working in any kind of, you know, intellectual capacity. So, you know, to get your own kind of, you had to be a self-starter. Mm. And so where I grew up, you know, the, the the common route was you go to school and then you go into trade. Okay. But I realized at yeah. 16, you know, I thought it's got to be more to life than being born and bred and living in Swindon. Great place as it is. Um you know, pretty famous from The Office, if you've ever seen that. But uh -huh. for me, it wasn't really aspirational um, in some respects. And I thought it's got to be more to life uh, than just working in Swindon and staying here. And then someone said to me at 16, you know, get, get these things called A-levels. And I thought, you know, is that it? And he went, yeah, just get, get a couple of A-levels and you can go to university. You can leave Swindon and that's it. And I thought, right. So at 16, I thought, need to go to college. <laughs> wasn't really working so hard uh, at GCSEs. Again, it goes back into not having the right peer group. You know, and I think there's a lot of sliding doors and people look back um, at opportunity. Sometimes you need to grasp it. Sometimes you're given it. Sometimes you're pushed into it and you don't realize at the time why parents are doing what they're doing. As I mm. tell my kids now, you know, I'm trying to give you opportunities. For me, it was kind of like you had to find your opportunities. So at 16, I really was a little bit clueless, apart from sport, about what life really meant. Uh, and then... I went to college and I went to apply for college and the guy said, you need four GCSEs. I remember, okay, I got four, I think. <laughs> I didn't really work that hard. Luckily, I had a good maths, a good English. Um, I had history and then I had something called typing. 
which was my fourth GCSE. And I said to the guy, does that count? And he kind of looked it up and he went, you're in. Because <laughs> that was <laughs> all you I mean, I must admit, that's a new one. I've not had that one before. Yeah. So I did my GCSEs. Well, I was born in 73. I turned 50 this year. So GCSEs would have been like 88, 89. Okay. There was no computing. There's no internet, right? On a typewriter? Or was On it? a typewriter. <laughs> wow, fair play. Uh, right. And so... Uh, I did, you know. So there you go. So it was the precursor of uh, of computing, I suppose. It, you know, we had we had computing, but it wasn't GCSE at that point. Got to got to the A levels and chose to do computer science, maths, uh, economics, and then kind of had the epiphany about probably about seventeen that okay, I quite enjoyed this computing thing. I quite I quite like the way it resonates with my brain. Mm. I quite enjoy again the programming bit, and I thought right, this is what I want to do. And then I suppose sometimes you need that you need that peer group. And I was playing cricket a lot on the weekends, and there was a guy there who was a developer. He was a, a contractor. Mm. I hadn't heard that term before, but he was making like twenty pound an hour, right? And I was thinking, wow, for what? And he's like, just coding. And I thought, right, I want to be, <laughs> I want to be exactly what you do. Going to draw upon my typing GCSE, right? Going to draw my typing GCSE. <laughs> you know, I can type you know forty words per minute. There's got to be a career here. And, and so back in, you know, 89, when I applied to university, um, you know, A-level was 91, it wasn't too hard to get into computer science because it was still at the, you know, I suppose, infancy mm. of being a popular degree yeah. course. Mm. Um, I think now it's probably the number one degree course. Definitely out there. Yeah. You know? But back in 91, when I applied, you know, you needed good grades, which I got. Um, and then got to university and that was it, I suppose. Started off doing computer science, did maths, did economics. Um, Still stayed in those subjects as long as it didn't have to involve writing an essay. I was okay. I realized that you know early on, nature, nurture. You know what you're good at. Yeah. You know what to avoid. Um, so it was computing for me all the way, and then I graduated. And then let's just say it wasn't the most uh, top ranking degree grade. Um, I think University of Life got hold of me more than <laughs> University of Education got hold of me. But I have no regrets. Well, uh, absolutely. I spent three glorious years at Cardiff University, and some of my best friends are still the ones who I met on that first day back in, you know, 1991. What a uh, place, Gates Union, yeah? Great place, great mm. place. Um, so, long story very short, came out in 94, and then thought, right, now I need to get a job with this degree in computer science. Um, luckily, it didn't quite matter what grade you had, as long as you had computer science, thank God, and uh, got my first job, I suppose. Fair enough. Good stuff. Well, I love that story. I really do. I mean, it's uh, you strike me like somebody that sort of follows their intuition to a degree. And uh, I think it's always nice to hear the story of, you know, where you started, where you weren't necessarily pushed down a particular route, but you realized that, you know, something like uh, computer science resonated with the logic side of your brain and obviously you went followed that channel. And now you're a CTO, right? And that's a great story, a really nice and it's one I, I think, I think my message from all of that is, you know, although I have two young kids now is really find a passion for what you do. Yeah. Whatever it may be, you know, if you're going to make coffee, just enjoy it. Yeah. Right. Make it every day make it to the best of your ability. And when you wake up every Monday, you want to go and do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's cliche, you know, if, you know, if you really enjoy what you do, it's, it's not a day's work in some respects. And for me, it, I suppose it's a little bit, um, I've been very fortunate in that. Right time, right place. Did a computer science degree, landed in you know '94 into a job market that was still trying to understand what IT was all about. But again, I just enjoyed. There was no plan, mm. right? Whereas now with my kids, I'm trying to give them a plan, and they look at me a little <laughs> bit like, you know, you know. I'm now putting myself in my you know my daughter's who's 15, mm. thinking if my father had told me at 15 what to do, I'm sure. The way that she looks at me is, is how I would have looked at him. But he didn't really give me any advice. His one advice was always, you know, look after your health and kind of have a smile and be happy and treat people. You know, very simple basics. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't about be ambitious. It wasn't about be successful, make money. They, they didn't really, you know, uh, feature in the vernacular in our conversations. Okay, interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. For him, it's really about, you know, if, you help, if you're happy and you're healthy, the rest of the things will come your way. Yeah. And so I've had that kind of happy or lucky attitude, um, I suppose, all my life. And then, you know, at certain points, you need to kind of realize it's only going to get you so far. Mm. You do need to then think about where you want to go yeah. and what you want to do. Mm. And some people have that at 10, 15, 25. 
you know, some entrepreneurs, I hear, I hear some stats, like in the most, the entrepreneurs that are making the most success of their life get it late, 40, 45, 50. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I don't yeah. think there is a path no. to what success is. And success is measured by yourself mm. versus what other people think of you. Because yeah. if I had taken the measurements of success from my peer group, I failed miserably. Mm -hmm. Okay. Until about 25. But for the first 25 years, compared to where they were and where I was, I was way below the ladder. But for me, that wasn't really lucky. I suppose the peer pressure there wasn't so great. It was, you know, I was enjoying what I was doing. Mm. And then you kind of meet people, whether that's partners or friends or colleagues. And then you start to look across and say, hey, I, I kind of like what you're doing. Mm. How do I get to do that? Mm. Yeah. Similarly, yeah. you know, you look across and say, I can do that. Mm. And you give yourself a little bit of confidence. Some people have that confidence instilled and that moves into arrogance. Mm. And some people sometimes don't use it fully. And then you're wondering if that a lost opportunity. Mm. So, I, you know, it's very difficult to, to say what success looks like. Yeah, you know? it is. Especially in this world that we live in today where, you know, you know money is sort of prioritized over all else. But I totally agree with you. I mean, I... For the first 10 years, probably, of my recruitment career, I chased money because I thought that was the thing that was going to make me happier. You know, you thought, you know, the next promotion, well, I've got to be happier when I get there. And then, lo and behold, you get there and you're not, you know, and you get another 20 grand in your paycheck and you're just as miserable, if not more miserable because you've got more responsibilities to bear. Um, and I totally agree with you. I think as parents, obviously, it's something you, you know, I particularly think about on a daily basis being in recruitment. My wife's a teacher as well. So, between us, it's something really we, we talk about quite often. Uh, you know, how do you set your kids up for success and, you know, what are those lessons that you really want to teach them at an early age? Yeah, but, and I think it's important, like I said, I think, you know, going back to that, you know, epiphany at 16 or, you know, sliding doors, do I go to college, do I go into industry, if I go into trade, I probably would have been successful in any of those. I don't think there was a right route. I've met mm. some of the best, you know, coders and programmers who I've met, never went to university. They came out yeah. at 16 and they were mm. coding away, and yeah, yeah. but they had a passion. Yeah. The people who I've met who really enjoy what they do and the people who've been really successful, and it's not all of them, obviously, because some of them are, you know, when you work in, I have a lot of friends who work in finance and make a lot of money. They're not really happy. No. But are they successful? Financially, yes. But mentally and from a social perspective, they don't talk about work. They don't enjoy mm. For me, I'm... To what I'm thinking it, breathing it, living it on a daily basis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I enjoy yeah. it. It's, for me, it's just, you know, I'm in the right place, right? Yeah, fantastic. And it's it is great. Like I said, it's, it's culminated in, you know, I suppose the, the, the pinnacle of, uh, of of the tech career becoming a CTA. So that's something I'm quite keen to pick on a thread because obviously a lot of engineers, the way the mind works, they, they really enjoy that kind of reinforcement of, um, logic, solving logical problems. It doesn't always lend itself well to progressing into leadership, people management, you know, maybe those sort of softer skills that you need to be a CTO. So was it always a natural progression for you to to move into leadership? Did you always feel you were cut out for it? Is it something you had to work hard on? And, and I suppose, yeah, what were those skills that you personally had to develop to get that well-rounded CTO skill set? Yeah, I think you always have to work at it. I'm always reading. I'm always learning. I'm always understanding how to be more self-aware, um, empathy, understanding people, soft skills, hard skills, you know what I mean? Technical skills, numerical skills, they're not all natural. Mm. Um, technology was, coding was, IT was natural. And then as you start to progress through your career, it's unfortunate, I suppose, as a technologist, you do get to this fork in the road where there's not enough hours in the day to be truly technical. Mm and then start to move into some type of management or leadership role. Yeah. It just doesn't happen, right? So, and I have friends of mine who I started off with at, you know, 21, who are still coding. They've been doing it for 30 years and they're as happy as Larry. And they're like, we're exactly where we want to be. My dread would be managing somebody. Mm. Okay. Because they enjoy going in. It's a set problem. They put on their headphones. They write their code. It compiles. They go home. Mm. I enjoyed that. Then I got to the point where I thought, that's good, but I feel like a note taker. How do I become less of a note taker and more influence in what I'm building, how I'm building, and the problem statement? And to do that, I need to move closer to the business. 
right? I suppose, you know what I mean? I needed to get closer to understanding the business. And I suppose naturally, as I started to become more inquisitive around the other side or being given a set of instructions and started to do some analysis around what the problem statement was, you start to kind of naturally start moving away from just being a coder. And that's what happened to me mm. probably about 10 years in. I realized also as a coder, as a developer, the market was changing, right? So we're talking about 2001, 2002 now, the advent of offshore technology was coming in. Mm. You know, the Indian software houses were coming in. Yeah. Developers were now becoming a commodity. It wasn't such a skill set anymore. It was more of a numbers game. Yeah. And I thought if I don't change, if I don't adapt, then I've either got to be the best coder, and I, w I was good, but I wasn't the best, or I've got to become a chameleon and start changing my spots and start becoming something a bit more useful to the environment I was in. Interesting. So it's kind of a, a quite conscious decision at the same time as, as maybe wanting a fresh challenge. You kind of noted actually that sort of a conscious yeah, choice I need to make. Almost consciously, yeah, exactly. Um, some people do it later, some people do it earlier, some people do it too late and they realize that they can't move because then they're almost, you know, you're boxed in, yeah. right? And it's almost like there's, there is a there is a point in time where if you do want to move from a coder into potentially a, a solution architect, or even if you think about it, maybe a technical lead or a project manager, there's a certain point in time where it's natural to start moving across. Otherwise, you become almost you know boxed as you're a developer. Yeah. You know what do you mean? You know how do you how do you how do you morph into something different? Yes. You know yeah. it's quite different because you get labelled. Mm. And when you're a contractor, which I did for quite a few years, you're a gun for hire. They don't want you to think out the box, mm. right? They're like, there's the problem. Yeah. Your CV is the exact role I need. Just fix the problem. And you start thinking about, are you being, you know, they're like, well, actually, I didn't pay for that. What I mm. paid for was you just code away. Yeah. So that's probably the reasons why I went from permanent roles to contract roles to permanent roles. They all kind of served the purpose. Yeah, which was my kind of interest or in some respects, you know, it wasn't about the money because I was contracting, I was making, you know, it was a good daily rate, it was uh, financially very well, but I took a conscious decision to get out of contracting and go per me and take uh, a, a lower salary, but the role was more diversified. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't want to be stuck in a, in, a, in a box. And it would have been a very successful box. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't so like... Was, again, yeah, how we define success, but yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in, in, from a financial perspective, I remember when I, you know, left the, the contract I was in, I was there for about three years. And uh, I remember the, the guy I was working for said, why? And he goes, you know, you're making an absolute killing. And I said, yeah, it's not about the money. I suppose you can say that once you made the money. Yeah. You know what I mean? And financially, mm. I was making more than I needed yeah. as a contractor. So, you, you know, everyone knows what their burn rate is. Yeah. Okay, without getting into finances, everyone knows, you know, there's a great book by a guy called Daniel Pink that talks about, you know, drive and he talks about intrinsic and extrinsic value. Yeah. You've got to pay somebody enough to get them through the door. Yeah. Okay. So they're not worrying about the bills and they're not worrying about childcare. Yeah. And once you've done that, you then have to get them, you know, passionate about the organization and the values and the reason why you're there. To get those both right, mm. it's very difficult. But if you do, you have an employee that is satisfied financially as well as in, you know intellectually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that thing. Yeah, one of the the kind of light bulb videos I watched online um, probably about ten years ago now is the one about um, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. I don't know if you saw that, but and that's the uh, is that that's that purpose bit. And it's the, mm. so kind of when you're in your, in your earlier years, you don't really think about purpose. You think about income. Yeah, you know what I mean. Simple because yeah. the income is a, a means to an end to go out on a weekend, go on a holiday, buy your first property, buy a car. Yeah. You know, because that's what you're doing, right? If you come from, as I came from, a working class family, you know, we were never, um, we were never poor, but was, you know, we didn't go on any foreign holidays, right? Mm. So as soon as I got some money, that was it. I was going, you know, but they, then it was, it was finances, and then when I got to a certain point, I realised, well, actually, I know I can always make this certain amount of income. Then, then it became actually like that. What's the purpose? Mm. Yeah. And that's when I changed roles, trying to find almost not a purpose in some respects, but finding satisfaction in an intellect. Mm. Like, am I now solving problems that are intellectually demanding? Yeah, because yeah. I'm not worried about the money anymore. It's, that's the baseline. Mm. But, you know, but I took a drop. 
And people said, why? And I said, well, actually, because it's because I'm now at the bottom ladder, or sorry, the bottom rung of a ladder that has more growth, mm-hmm. right? Because I got to the top of the ladder in the last role uh, from a financial perspective and even from an intellectual perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was still curious. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I thought, well, actually, it's easy to stay. It's risky to take the move. Yeah. But I wasn't thinking about the risk. I was thinking about the upside. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, respect. Absolutely. One step back, take two step forward to the saying, uh, seems like it's paid off. Absolutely. Yeah. So I changed, you know, so that's probably the first time I also changed from becoming a developer or a coder or a team leader and moved into consultancy and working for, I suppose, the business. So actually thinking about solutions. So, you know, yeah. if you need, you ask the question around path to a CTO, I think, you know, you have to make conscious decisions at some point if you want to make, uh, I don't know whether CTO is the end game. Right. And there's a, but I think if you want to get into a leadership position, you've got to start adding some more, you know, strings to the bow, mm. apart from just technology um, and understanding, you know, consultancy helped me understand more about, you know, bedside manner in a weird way, working with consultancies, sink or swim, mm. ability to think fast, think in your feet, um, you know, to collaborate, to communicate. Those are all the key things that will change you from, just a developer who codes to someone who actually then has value beyond just coding. Mm. But for me, having that link and credibility to technology, I still rely on it on a daily basis because mm. they expect that. But then they expect a lot more, mm. right? So that's really, you know, I would say to people who, who think about, you know, the CTO role, be wary of what you ask for because it's the, the job you've been doing previously plus about five different things that if you don't enjoy it, <laughs> It's going to become a very tough day, mm. right? So you know, it's about you know, I would kind of you know, as I look back, um, there were some conscious moves, not to CTO. I think more to roles where I really felt I had additional skills, um, and then you know, naturally moved from solution architecture to enterprise architecture to chief architect, and then CTO. Fair enough, and all very similar but just emphasis on different parts of your skill set. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's almost like additive. It's almost like if you're doing 100% technology and then you move into a solution architect, 100% of technology now becomes the 80%, but it's still 100%. Mm. You're now doing 20% on top. Mm. Right? So you then have to start to prioritize and start thinking quicker. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's a very, I think it's a very demanding role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, yeah, 100% I can empathize with that. I mean, talk me through then in your capacity at the, the, the AEA, you've been there a little over a year now. Yeah. So whenever you join any new business, especially a yeah, big brand like that, and you're joining it at the C-suite, I guess it's always going to be a really interesting uh, way in which you approach that that role. So talk us through that sort of first year you've had in the business, how you've approached it, and um, yeah, that sort of journey uh, that you've been on the first year. Yeah, so it's uh, an interesting organization. It's been around since 1905. It has a huge brand, a lot of credibility. You know, it's, uh, it is an interesting brand because um, when I joined a year ago, my neighbor who is, you know, fairly senior, late 60s, early 70s, she came out proudly showing me her AA membership book because she's been a member for 30 years. <laughs> okay. And then vice versa, I have another neighbor who's like young 30s, doesn't have a car, AA what has no idea, mm. right? So it, it is a it is an organisation that's, that's been around, but it's also had to uh, reinvent itself mm. quite a few times. Um, so when I joined a year ago, they'd been purchased by a private equity company. Um, it's all very public, so it's all out there in public domain. And so you know the driver is to really reinvigorate the organisation. They were carrying, um, you know, let's say legacy, but there was a a lot of opportunity. So. From my perspective, you know, I had to do a 100-day plan. It's quite good, actually. I've probably, I've done them a couple of times, but it's a good way to measure, I suppose, your progress in the first, you know, you can say 100 days, whatever it may be. It doesn't really matter. But there's a period of time where you, you score yourself as to how you progressed. And, you know, um, as you go through the, I suppose, the phases of a new role, everyone does this in a certain respect. And the first thing is to understand the current state is to understand what you've inherited. Yeah. Understand the people who you're working with. 
show some empathy to the decisions that have already been made. Mm. Right? It's very easy to criticize. Yeah. Right. It's very easy not to understand the story and the backstory as the reason why they are where they are. Yeah. So, you know, my 100-day plan was all about understanding, listening, learning, not trying to, you know, shoot from the hip. I made that mistake previously where I joined a company. I was fairly, not early in my career, but it was my third kind of chief architect role. I came in all guns are blazing. I think I had all the answers to all the problems. And then luckily one of the senior, uh, he was the actual, the guy I worked for, the, like the chief um, right, risk officer, came over and said, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And he said, wise words, very wise. And I remember, you know, thinking, I don't know, you know, I want to change development. I want to change the software. I want to change this. And he went, okay. Very seasoned guy said, okay, all of those things will happen and you will get there. But first, no one knows who you are. Mm. So first you've got to get some credibility. Yeah. First you've got to prove, you know, that you can actually listen and first, you've got to prove that actually, you know, you're thinking about the organization and it's not about yourself and you don't know who the people you're working with, the people you've inherited. So I got around to this role. There's a lot more, let's say, listening, a lot more thinking, a lot more analysis without jumping in with, I've got the solution. Interesting. Whereas first of all, I thought I had the solution. Mm. Interesting enough, that role lasted nine years because it, it it took time. Different organizations have a different pace mm. of change, a different culture, um, and sometimes the ability to change. Change is the hardest thing, yeah. right? As in, you know, you have all the ideas in the world, but you've got to take people with you. Sure. So when I joined here, it was about understanding the problems, the business drivers, making sure you know, what you're doing has a direct line back to either growth or cost efficiency or optimization. Um, and, it's, you know, and sometimes it's just hard. Right. It's, you know, you go to all the best intent in the world and then, you know, your team is maxed, mm. right? And you look around going, there's no bench strength. Mm. Everyone's fully optimized. Yeah. So then, you know, there's only so much you can pick up. Yeah, so yeah. that's a reality check. Mm. You know, you've got to prioritize. You've got to think about what's most important. Um, and it's chipping away. It's very easy to become pessimistic and almost fall into the step of, oh, we've done that before. Yeah. Right. Mm. Oh, we've tried that one, Mike. So, you know, you really have to convince heart to mind um, and take people with you. And I think that's the bit you learn about how to get that done. And sometimes you're not successful yeah. because it's just the organization doesn't want to change yeah. or actually what, you know, you think is important is not what's important for them. And then you have to sometimes just make a call and go, okay, you know, and it's happened before where I've gone, okay, I think we disagree because I think this is really important. This is where we should be going. But the priorities are elsewhere. And then you kind of need to say, am I actually linked into the purpose? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because then it's very difficult to go to work every day. You know, in the, you know the same old story and people are going, it's not happening here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, when I look back over my career with some of the, the best CTOs I've ever worked alongside, I think that quality of, like I say, winning hearts and minds and getting people aligned with a greater good of the mission is uh, absolutely key, I think. It's you can't do it by yourself. No. That's the whole thing. You know, you've got to you've got to have a vision and you've got to have the answer in your back pocket. And that comes from experience, not from arrogance. That's because I've been doing it for 30 years. Mm. You kind of do know what good looks like. Then you have to convince other people that this is the same journey and you should follow me. Mm. Um, and But you need them to do the work for you mm. because if they don't get it and they don't understand the vision, uh, and the reason why, then, you know, they, they're not going against you, but it just becomes a harder journey. You can't yeah. do it by yourself. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? So you need sponsorship, and I think that's probably important. That word sponsorship, I use it a lot with people, is it's a great idea, but who's actually sponsoring the idea? Because mm. if you don't have the sponsorship, then, you know, you are kind of, it's a bit grassroots, kind of shouting in the wind, mm. kind of need some sponsorship, someone to kind of clear the landmines, give you air cover. Yeah, and so I spend a lot of time. I suppose, in some respects, it's very silent. But you're almost clearing the way for the people who work for you to get stuff done. Sure. And as a leader, that's what you can do: mm. is to give them the space and to feel comfortable and to challenge. You know, so when I, so when I joined here a year ago, you know, the team was small. They needed to be, um, I suppose, reinvigorated. They need to have a purpose. You know, I needed to listen because they have the stories, they've got, you know, as I say, bring out your dead, you know, mm. don't worry about 
failed projects or technologies yeah. that aren't great. Now's not the time to hide it. Let's be transparent. Mm. But you know that helps, I suppose, then to have a, a shared vision about where you want to go. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. When you when you go into a business like the AA, and I guess like you say, you're kind of in that knowledge absorption mode of getting a lay of the land and and trying to actively listen to not only win hearts and minds, but genuinely understand the kind of, you know, where, like I say, what is the current state and obviously from here where we need to go. How do you go about that process of um, assessing the different competing, you know, potential projects, objectives that may be and actually prioritizing where is, is the, the best place for us to, to move forward? Yeah, I mean, there's some good frameworks out there. I mean, and I think it's a kind of, again, it goes back to experience, but you kind of know there's, you know, risk and regulatory projects that just need to happen. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I think it's kind of having a balanced portfolio because, you know, you need to you need to fix the, the stuff that just has to work. So, you know, you get the basics, get the foundations working because without that, you know, you're going to have a, a leaky roof or some bad plumbing. You know, it's like mm. fix, fix the stuff that's kind of hidden a little bit, but it's going to be foundational. Yeah. And then start to think about some of the innovation because you need to kind of, you know, it's very hard to get stuck in the weed and not deliver anything. But you also need to show a little bit of innovation and kind of bring some outside thinking in. So, you know, prioritization, being really realistic with, you know, people talk about benefits case and business cases and, you know, you need those. And sometimes you also need a little bit of a hunch, right? And sometimes the business case. And if you're going to do it truly by the business case, one, I don't think anyone ever does business realization after a business case. You know, you do the business case to get the money. They don't ever measure whether the business case met the no zero. Mm. Never seen that happen. But they get you through the front door, mm. right? So there's a little bit of artistic license in business cases, okay, and benefits cases. But you need to do that because it helps you do the thinking. It's like you know if you're going to buy a property and it's worth X amount of money, and you go and spend a huge amount of money doing it up, and you sell it, you don't recoup the investment. Maybe you should just put your money in the bank. Mm. Maybe that was a better idea. So there's a certain amount of, you know being harsh with the return you're going to get. And then sometimes there are things you just know you need to do because it's foundational and it will lead to the next project. So having a balanced portfolio, when you look at things like mandatory, things that are just run, keep the lights on, as they say, and then you have additional things which are about growth. Those are the ones that, you know, are exciting to your sponsors because they're the ones that, you know, it's like, you know, they're the ones where, you, you know, you paint the front door. It looks all nice and exciting, but the door's falling apart behind the scenes. Well, actually, maybe you should have fixed the door first before you paint it, mm. right? So there's a certain amount of trying to keep it all balanced. But you need, to, you need to do all of it. If you just spend all the money on the foundations. Not a very nice house. <laughs> it doesn't look, but it feels good. Yeah. But no one sees that, mm. right? That's the problem. Mm. And from a technology perspective, trying to show that to, I suppose, you know, the business sponsors and the CEOs. The things that excite them is growth, yeah, right. New income. Mm. Explaining that you, you know, you fixed a whole bunch of vulnerabilities in some Linux server is not going to excite anybody. But if you don't, you'll end up on the front page of the Times yeah. because you've been hacked. <laughs> yeah, right? I guess that goes back to the winning hearts and minds piece as well, doesn't it? So you've got to convince. You've got to have a balanced portfolio. Mm. You know, so you've got to be able to, uh, you know, as I always think about it. Um, I'm not a gambling person, but my, you know, the best analogy for me is if you think about a roulette table. It's a little bit like betting, but you kind of know if you go for black or red, odds or evens, you're going to get a decent return. Mm. So, you, you know, some of your money just needs to go on the, the ones that you just know are going to yeah. work. And then now and again, you may just go put it all on 20. We don't do enough of the, let's just put it all on 20, mm. which for me is like your innovation slash slush fund. Okay. It's like, there's no business case. It feels like it could be an opportunity. So I need to test and learn and learn quickly. And then someone says, what's the business case? You're like, well, that's the point. I don't have a business case. Because if everyone had a business case, you wouldn't have innovation. Mm. Because you'd be too scared to fail. Yeah. And that's the point with a lot of organizations is you don't get the opportunity to fail. Mm. Well, not in my case, not fail, but learn quickly. Yeah. And so, you know, for companies that are truly, you know, I suppose pushing the envelope and the startups, for example, they're almost not thinking about the return on investment. Mm. They're just thinking pure about innovation. pure innovation, mm. right? If you're a large company that's been around for 100 years or if you're a FTSE LinkedIn, you know, organization, you have shareholders, you have, you've got to show where the money's being spent. Mm. And I think it's in those organizations, innovation is a lot harder. 
Yeah, I can imagine. You know what I mean? So yeah. if you can get that working, and then you need good sponsorship. So that goes back to the point of you can't ask for it from day one. So if you can get some credibility, if you can win hearts and minds, if you can show progress on fixing the core on the foundations, you then get, you know, the rope gets a little bit longer. Yeah. The leash gets a bit, a bit longer. They trust you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. The next phase is then to start showing some innovation and showing how that can feed back into the organization. That takes time. Yeah. That's the hard bit. If you can get that working, um, I think then the role becomes exciting again. Otherwise, it just becomes pretty functional BAU, mm. right? And, you know, in my role, you know, that's just, you know, as BAU, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. But, you know, when you're from a technology perspective, technology is for me an enabler. Mm. So how do you get that in front of the board? Yeah. Right, yeah. without a solid business case. Mm. Right. Well, I guess that's a question I'm going to ask you. How, how do you do that? Because get, there's probably so many companies out there, like say FTSE 100 companies that are in a very similar situation where they've brought you know investors to answer to and yeah innovation is tough you know so how how do you go about positioning that to a board uh to to give the you know that the start of the the leash like you say yeah so normally it's like you know you, you've heard the word skunk works or you know sometimes it's like i think trojan horse you kind of have to embed it in other projects that have a business case mm. you know the ones that where the finance has been approved there's no harm in putting a little bit of additional funding in that particular project to actually start to maybe lay the foundations for the next project. Because sometimes you have to do it, show it before they believe it. Because if you, if you tell them it's an idea, you know, the risk profile is like, it may never pay off. So sometimes you have to get quite inventive with the way you do the funding. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, you know, and a lot of it's side of the desk, right? Which is unfortunate because it's almost like unrecognized work, mm. you know? You need people who trust you. So, you know, we've done a, a quite nice few bits of innovation around AI in the, in, in the AA right now. And it's not above the line work. People don't know about it. But there's a whole bunch of grassroots people who are interested. We've created a local group. You know, there's a whole Teams channel. We're all talking about it. We're all trialing it. Yeah. We're almost like testing it. Because if we say, if you, if you put it above the parapet, it becomes a project and a program. It needs mm-hmm. funding, it needs steering committee, it needs sponsorship, it needs money, blah, blah, blah. Constant monitoring. You're never going to get anywhere. So if you draw it below the line, it kind of, in some respects, people are working twice as hard because they have a day Mm. job. And then you're asking them to, can we just do a little bit of test and learn? Can we set up an environment? Can we test this, test that? There's no project code for that, Mm. right? But if people, I suppose, can also share the vision and you get them excited because as a Mm. technologist, this is the stuff they want to do. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. You know, so you have to kind of like give them, a, I suppose, the opportunity to run. So I'm always sponsoring, you know, the grassroots thinking because for me, innovation is not big eye or small eye. It's happening all the time. It's yeah. happening within the business. It's happening with people who, you know, are doing their day job and they're also thinking about you know, improvement, challenging the status quo, how they can do their job better. That doesn't come within the technology department. I think I think it's been very naive to think all technology needs to happen with the technology department and only the IT people can do IT. Mm. It's, a really, it's, it's a view that polarizes people. People talk about, you know, shadow IT or technology in the business. It happens anyway. Mm. So if you, if you think it's not happening, you know, you, you kind of, you're not on the same planet as everybody else. Mm. It's happening. What you need to do is how do you embrace it and how do you put your arms around it without just curtailing it? Yes. So what I do is, you know, is the doors open. I encourage people, you know, there's obviously understanding how far you can run because there are issues with, you know, legalities or contracts or data loss. So you have to be conscious of it. Yeah. But you don't want to be stifling innovation. You want that to be happening all over the place. Mm. You know what I mean? But what you need to do is ask them to come and show you. So don't force it underground. Yeah. It's like bring it to the surface. And then once you get a groundswell, then you can go back and say, okay, okay well, actually, this is not me saying this is going to be happening. Look, it's it's already happened. Now we need to, you know, make it into a project and a program and put some money and more resources behind it. So it is difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah it yeah. is difficult to do, right? Yeah. And, and when you label something as an innovation program, it's going to fail, mm. right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's just, you know, the expectations are almost too high. Yeah. 
So you almost need the people who are really passionate about this in the organization. And that may be somebody who's working in a contact center who sees a bit of opportunity to do complaints management in a different way or to use, you know, low code or RPA, or in this case, now you have Gen AI coming. Mm. You know what I mean? It's becoming just part of the day job. Yeah. So yeah, for yeah. me, it's not about driving it underground. It's about bringing it back out again. Yeah, interesting. But, but, but kind of showing that, you know, I'm interested and I'm not going to, you know, shut it down. Yeah. But there's also a way to do it. Yeah. Because we have to protect ourselves legally and from a data perspective. So, you know, putting your, you know, putting your contractual legal documents into chat GPT to summarize it may not be the best thing in the world. Mm. But then it's like, well, what else can you offer me? So at the same time, you know, you need to have a solution. If you're going to stop something, you need to give something. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and I can. Uh, yeah, I guess that draws <clears throat> straight back into talent retention as well, doesn't it? At the end of the day, because people totally. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's very hard to, you know, if you think about developers or technologists or data science or AI machine modeling. Um, come on, work for the AA. Why? So, you know, you need to, you need to, you need to like be able to explain that we are doing innovation and we are yeah. technically pushing the boundary. You may not see or hear about it, but I'm, but we're not saying we don't want to do it. So to mm. promote that through the culture is important. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, mm. because, you know, it, it is, it is for a technologist, you know, it's, if you like technology as I've done, it's always about pushing the envelope. Mm. It's always about understanding how technology can help, you know, with the business. Yeah, because they're all here at the end of the day. To I suppose in some respects, you know, turn up, turn up, turn up for work, do a good job, but certainly have if you're in technology, you know, you need a passion for what you do, and you want to be kind of playing with the latest toys. So being told you can't, mm. it's sometimes it's like, well, I'll go somewhere else then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know yeah, well, I, I've never really heard it described like that before, but I, yeah, I can definitely see that like, sort of how you went out and earth that innovation and. And then voice it to the board. I can imagine is a particularly skillful endeavour um, and a real challenge. But you know, whilst we're on the subject of challenges, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've had so far in the role of a CTO, and, and how have you actually gone about addressing those? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is really about understanding the finances of the organisation. So yeah. if you're a you know, if you're a technologist, you're in, interested in technology, but you really need to understand, if you can understand the money, that makes you more powerful, right? Because otherwise then you have, you know, technology with the context of how much it's going to cost, what it's going to return, how much you spend already. Mm. So I would say, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm still doing it now and I'm still learning is really starting to understand more about the cost to operate technology. So... From you know all the contracts, all the software licenses, all the technology that's been purchased, you know how many times we bought it. Trying to understand that it's like an audit of all that software. I think it's important in every organisation I've worked in because I think you become more powerful and more valuable as a conversation, especially with senior people, if you can relate it back to the finances, mm. right? Because otherwise it's just toys for boys, toys for girls. Doesn't really matter. What I'm saying is, it's just technology then. Mm. But, you know, if you can understand the technology and the cost and how it fits into the organization and how you can maybe remediate or remove a legacy technology by introducing new technology and what it does to the expense and what it does to the growth, those conversations become more powerful. Yeah. Right. Then it's not just about I'm buying a whole bunch of technology. It's because it has a purpose. It also reduces the expense or it gives us capabilities to drive more growth, uh, different business lines, different products. You know what I mean? So I think having those conversations and, and getting involved is one of the challenges, um, you know, I would say for CTO slash CIOs. And why I say that is the CTOs have a different job description depending on the company and its stage or where it is as an organization. Yeah. If you're a CTO for a startup, you're probably coding. Yeah. Hands on. Very much so. Okay. And probably a very small team mm. and you're doing everything. If you join a CTO, a large organization, you may never see technology and you're just looking after, you know, the service desk and you're looking after, yeah. you know what I mean? You yeah. kind of, you, you're sort of spectrum, isn't it? It's a different role. It, it really, it really swings around about as to the stage of the company and its maturity. Mm. So from, in my perspective with the AA, you know, it's a very strong team, uh, very strong leadership team. 
my perspective is more about the technology and the strategy and understanding the investment, where to spend, where we don't need to spend, where do, you know, do we have gaps in our capabilities, what's holding the business back from deploying new products. Is there a way to make it more efficient to deploy, deploy products? Um, is there a way to reduce the cost to deploy products? Those conversations are more powerful. Yes. You know, because technology has yeah. got to the point now where it's, it's got so good. Uh, and with the, you know, the advent of SaaS providers and cloud providers, a lot of businesses don't even see technology as technology. So them, it's a yeah. service, mm. right? The reason why they're buying it themselves. Mm. Because, you know, I have a credit card. I will go and buy some services. It happens to be software. But they don't see it like that. No. Because, of the, you know, the advent of the cloud has made that really quite seamless now. Absolutely. Right? You don't have yeah. to go and buy software and then procure some servers and they get some people to install the, the CD and then install this. That's all gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You go to the web, you find out what the business problem is. There's probably a SaaS provider. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? So the world of uh, technology is moving to the point where you're almost becoming... Um, almost like a team of integrators because the technologies are almost being built now in the cloud and all you're doing is sewing it all together yeah. and making sure the data transfers from A to B to C to D in a very secure manner, hopefully. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And trying to make it very seamless in that journey. And that's gonna that's a change. And then trying to understand why you need to build versus buy is all, you know, is a conversation you have on a daily basis. Yeah. Right? Because the, you know, if you're a technology company from the start, you may be building because that's actually your USP. That's what you've done. That's your product. Yeah. If you're a company that does roadside services and breakdown and insurance, I would say it's pretty commoditized. Mm. You know, you know, it's almost like challenges a need. What's the secret sauce and all of that? It's probably not the software. It's probably how you deploy your service, mm. right? Yeah. And how quickly you serve a customer. Yeah. They don't really care about whether you built that technology or not. No, I'm saying. So from a cost and efficiency point of view, sometimes it's, and then speed as well, it probably makes sense to to go third party or you know. Right, and then you have to be kind of comfortable with the fact that you're giving away, I suppose, control mm-hmm. to those cloud vendors. Yeah, right. And so uh, I would say, you know, three or four years ago, I had a conversation with a CIO who I worked for. He kept saying, you know, you know, cloud is still happening. Um, and then I remember saying to him, well, this is about 2018, 2019. Um, I was saying, okay, yeah, I, I get it. You know, we, we'll build private cloud because that's the way to go. And now we're in 2024. You're going to be managed to the cloud. If it hasn't happened, it's happening. Yeah. Right. Every time you come and do an upgrade of a particular piece of software, mm-hmm. you won't get an on-prem version. Mm-hmm. It'll be simple as it's going to be in the cloud. And your next version is going to move. But that also changes your funding model, which is interesting. So people talk yeah. about, you know, you can buy some servers, you can stick them in a data center, and you can, you know, depreciate that over five years and maybe sweat it for another two years. Mm. Um, but now that's an operating expense. Mm. That actually changes the model. A lot of yeah, companies actually. aren't kind of, aren't really set up for it because actually that also changes the finances a mm. lot. Yeah, and this is interesting. Yeah, we're in a kind of swing world now, where we're swinging from on-prem um, to cloud. And interestingly enough, there are now loads of conversations happening within the technology world about is everything fit for the cloud? And now you start hearing about cloud repatriation, mm. right? Cloud, back, yeah, there's a couple of instances of that actually come back from the cloud. So I think it's an interesting area around um, you know the challenges of. You know, the CTO is that it's, I think it's the, the most amount of technology change I've seen in my whole career. Yeah. Because the cloud has changed everything. The vendors, the speed, uh, the products that are out there. Mm. You know, if you're a new company today, you don't really need many technology people. Mm. You know, if you were just starting up, you think about, you know, a lot of the, the entrepreneurs, they start in the cloud. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Their legacy is zero. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they're evergreen. Mm. All right. So it's changed. It's changed. It changed roles a lot. Yeah, for a lot of people. Yeah, right? I see. Yeah, and I guess in the role of you know, CTO embracing change. Yeah, cloud obviously is one that's had a, a fundamental shift in the technology landscape. And I think you mentioned earlier on one of the 
projects you've embarked upon recently and yeah, he's, he's doing some innovation work around um, Gen AI. Mm. I suppose that's the other big hot, hot potato at the moment of, uh, you know, what's really shifting the dial forward. Um, so I guess, what is it you're most excited about as a as a CTO? What sort of technology trends do you uh, do you kind of find really exciting there? Well, I think the AI one, obviously, you know, I think we're all going to look back at 2023 and say, where were we when that came out? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it will be a landmark um, period of time because it has changed and it will change the way we work. Um, it's going to become you know, just part of the standard in you know, a day job. You know, if you're writing job descriptions or summarizing content, it's just going to become the way mm. of doing it. Yeah. Um, so I think trying to understand how to use it is going to be interesting. And looking at the use cases from, you know, personal productivity use cases, which is we're using it now, to actually then using it for uh, external consumer-facing journeys, I think will be the the conversation about how far can you go without having a human in the loop. Yeah. And that's what I'm intrigued about, watching that space. Mm. Because there have already been a couple of incidents, I think it was on LinkedIn just the other day, about you know, DPD, I think, had an interesting... I didn't see that one. So they had their, their chatbot was based on, uh, I think, a generative, uh, you know, large language model. Mm. So it wasn't prescriptive. Like most of the chatbots are pretty prescriptive, you know, They're like a, a knowledge base. Yeah. You ask it something, it says, I can, you know, it can only respond with five phrases. Whereas now it was using generative text. So someone said, write me a poem about a very bad delivery company. And it wrote a very nice poem about DPD being crap and falling <laughs> apart. And it was very interesting. Brilliant. And then they realize uh, maybe they shouldn't have released it without a human in the loop. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, you know, companies are learning, you know, um, that, you know, at what point can you let it loose? Um, you know, they talk about the Turing test, which is a classic one, which is, can you tell whether it's a human mm. or not? Um, I think, I think we're going to get there. Uh, but I think at the moment, there's a little, little bit of caution about how far you let it go yeah. without having some type of um, control yeah. over it, yeah. especially for consumers yeah. internally it doesn't really matter if that makes a mistake true okay? yeah, yeah it'll end up on the front page of linkedin if it does make a mistake as it has yeah, yeah, yeah. right yeah. and then it's a case of okay that maybe that wasn't a great a great use case yes um but i think that's gonna be interesting i think over the next um you know 12 to 18 months but you know like i said the the change the velocity of change within this area um it's great because it's going to create a whole new um bunch of jobs roles descriptions are going to change the way your work's going to change, you know, it's going to be um, it's going to be a whole new bunch of learnings for people, training courses. You know, it's going to be interesting to see um, you know how far it goes and how quickly. Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's not going backwards, is it? Put it that way. It's uh, no, the cat's out of the bag and yeah. it's moving forward. Now it's yeah. just a case of how do you harness the energy? Yeah. Right. Um, mm. And then you will go through this, you know, trough of disillusionment, as they call it, where you only realise, you know, it's either it's just too difficult, it's too hard, it's too powerful. It's almost like, what can't you do with it? You know what I mean? Mm. You're almost like you're, you can end up in this spiral of overthinking everything. Yeah. Right? Which is why you kind of need people out there in their day jobs thinking about how they can use it because it's too difficult yeah. to just say it can only happen in one area. Mm. Right? It's going to be happening. People will use it a lot differently than you think you would use it. It's like, oh, yeah. it's like most things. You know, you give somebody a tool and you think, okay, so how are they using it in a certain way? And next thing, they're using it to prop a door open. You're mm -hmm. like, the hammer wasn't meant for that. Yeah. Same with the AI. I think what we think it can do and what people we use it for will be quite interesting in the next uh, year or so. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I totally agree with you about the watershed moment. And it's the first time I've, I've feel, in, you know, certainly my 15 years of doing this job, you know, technology's come along and, and been a global phenomenon. It's been an event that's happened literally globally where my mum will know what chat GPT is and will have used it and played around with it. And I think that's the first time that's kind of... It can get weary though. I think it's going to get... You're going to get to the point of being almost AI weary consumed. You know what I mean? It's almost like... Yeah. Almost tired of thinking about where every time you do something, you're like, oh, should I be using it to do that? Yeah. You know, like mm. I was, uh, I was in the US for my um, nephew's wedding just back in September, and again overthinking it, my brother-in-law was writing a best man speech. I said, "Hey, why don't we put it through Chat GPT and do it in the voice of Clint Eastwood?" He loved it. 
So we did it in voice of Clint Eastwood, Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro. <laughs> and in the end, he went, oh, I'll, just, I'll just stick to my one. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I yeah. think there's going to be a point where people are going to get very weary yeah. about talking about it until it just becomes just part of the fabric. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I, I especially feel that way in uh, like the generative area when it comes to the art side of things. Uh, yeah. I feel that yeah, people will just go sort of 360 back to where we've come from because as great as it is, you can just literally type it in and you know, create a, a piece of art. I think, yeah, to your point earlier, the technology ultimately is there to serve a purpose for people, right? Technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's there to actually make a difference totally. to the person. Maybe life, it's like, so. I'm just, you know, maybe to predict in the future and we can't really tell. It could be like, you know, the DVDs came along, CDs came along, now vinyl's back again. Mm. Yeah. Because people realize they quite enjoyed a scratchy sound, right? Yeah. And they quite enjoyed having something physical. Yeah. Right? Like the Kindle, right? Mm. I mean, I've got three Kindles at home I haven't turned off for five years because I enjoy a book. Yeah. So going back to the art thing, it's very interesting. I was at a presentation the other day and um, the PowerPoint presentation, every other picture was a generated really nice clean image yeah but it almost got a bit like too clean yeah too good mm, you too know what perfect, I mean? too yeah. perfect mm. um so i can see not yet but i can see there's a certain point where you know where's the art yeah right where's the what makes you different it'll mm. it'll be almost like well, this is not ai generated mm, exactly yeah too, it's, it's it'll become i think too sterile and, and people will find beauty in the imperfections again you know yeah, but um, I think it's going to take an, uh, another cycle. Who, who knows when? Can't predict anything, to be honest. But um, yeah, it is it is tiring. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, being not even a CTO, I think if you enjoy technology and it's, I think, the, the amount of technology and the amount of change and the amount of power that's available is huge. It's now just limited by, you know, the ideas. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm. That's not an inhibitor anymore. Mm. So before it used to be, I've got a great idea, I'll take on you. Not. Now it's actually, it's, we're, we're waiting. Mm-hmm. How good is your idea? Which now exposes different problems. Because now it's like, oh, actually that idea maybe wasn't a great idea because now you can launch it so quickly. Yeah. Whereas previously it took time to launch an idea or go to market. Mm-hmm. Now you go to market really quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. So now you've got to learn to adapt. Yeah. You've got to learn to get out there quick, fail quickly, succeed mm-hmm. even quicker. The yeah. companies that can do that will be the ones that will survive because the business models will change on a continual basis. Yes. Yeah. You know? Agreed. Like yeah. Netflix has adapted. It's changed. Yeah. It's continuously evolving. Yeah. The AA is evolving. You know, we're going digital. All our journeys are digital. You know, we're doing you know, online tracking or where the vehicle is going to be. You can report your, you know, you have to incorporate that. That's kind of going to become just the baseline. Yeah. Yeah. So then it's understanding what's the differentiator. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, Mike, look, I really, really enjoyed the chat today. I think it's been a fantastic episode and uh, thank you very much for coming on and uh, speaking to us. And I like to end every podcast, uh, as you may know, if you've listened to it before, with the same question, which is, what is your one favourite piece of advice that you've ever received uh, that you would like to share with your, your fellow humankind? Yeah, I, I think it will be going back to, you know, the company I joined when I thought I knew all the answers, um, um, you know, and the, you know, the, the guy I work for, he, he employed me, just said, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I think it is. I think it's, I think everyone is, and, and it changes depending on the company you work for. So understanding the, the tempo of the organization, the culture of the organization, the same set of things that you think will work in one place may not work in another based on the way that organization works. So you need to understand mm how you get to change and how you affect change. Yes. Okay. I mm. mean, that's the bit I, I, you learn from just being, you know, present and listening and being in sync, uh, which kind of needs to be empathy, self-awareness, very mm. important. Because otherwise you can go in there thinking you've got all the answers and realize no one's following you. Yeah. Right. Because a very lonely place. Yeah. Right. So you got you got to bring people with you. So that goes back into not what you do, but how you do it. Mm, yeah absolutely I love what you said right at the beginning of the podcast of you still got to work at it you know you still got to read and upskill yourself on self-awareness because there's no there's no end state is there really it's just a continual journey um, you know I think totally I think you know learning 
reading, listening, podcasts, you know, videos, all at your fingertips, you know. Um, I think if you, you know, I don't think there's any, ever a finished product or a finished person. So mm. going back to the point of being at 16 or 18, I didn't know what good looked like. Mm. I just knew that if it meant that on a Sunday, I wasn't worried about the Monday, that wasn't a bad place to be. Mm. And I've met a lot of people who dread the Monday on the mm. Sunday. Yeah, me, it's like, for about 10 years. Yeah, and then it's like, <laughs> my wife did similar. And yeah. then it's like, change it. Yeah. And she did. Uh, and I have, mm. right? So there's no harm in in um, sometimes just, you know, I think it's easier to stay and it's harder to make the change. Yeah. Okay. But I think it's quite important sometimes to look back and go, maybe I stayed a bit too long. Mm. Maybe I should have, you know, and it's, you know, I think sliding doors, I don't, I don't think there's any right or wrong, but I think sometimes just being uncomfortable and just not overthinking it isn't a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, intuition's not, you know, sometimes quite powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, I'd like to say thank you again for coming on. Been a fantastic guest. And um, yeah, I wish you all the continued success. Uh, I'll keep you up to speed with all your latest progressions in the in the world of innovation and beyond in uh, the world of the A. And um, yeah, please do come on again and, uh, and come and share your story again with us. Great. Point. No, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the time.